So, welcome back everyone to the Reading Materials Podcast, where two friends get together every couple of weeks to talk about a book or series of books. My name is Lucia. And my name is Cory. And yeah, are there any life updates, Cory? Not, no, not, not massively, really. Just, just chilling. I'm at Will's parents' house today, so my audio might be slightly different, but yeah, just visiting the parents. <laughs> yeah, so you're you're with your in-laws. Yep. I'm with my in-laws. Yeah, so. <laughs> but you're not in Cyprus for once. No, for once I'm not in Cyprus. No, um, Andrea's parents came to visit us for a few days, which has been really nice, and I think they came at the best time because it's been quite warm. Um, obviously, not as warm as in the UK. Uh, how have you survived the heat wave? Uh, lots of cold baths. Literally just soaking in a in a in cold water. Yeah, it hasn't been particularly yeah. pleasant because I struggle in our flat anyway because we've got loads of skylights, so mm. it's quite hot at the best of times. Uh, and there's there's not really any way to cool it down. So we did go all Mediterranean and we had all the blinds closed during the day, and we'll put tin foil all over the bathroom window. <laughs> To try reflect as much sun out as he could, <laughs> which is quite amusing to come home to. <laughs> and then I, I went to the office because it had air, it has air conditioning. So good, yeah. How how's mm. it's not been as hot for you, but no. So the hottest it got on Monday, apparently, was thirty three point something degrees. Right, which, to be fair according to the Irish meteorologists, is the hottest it's been in 150 years. Wow. So. <laughs> it's just unfortunate that you spend so much time in Cyprus. <laughs> yes, exactly, because we were driving around with Andrea's parents, and granted, it was really sunny. It was warm, like it was hot, but we were listening to the news, and they were saying, it's like, oh, orange weather warning, you know, heat wave, and going to be unbearable at night because it's going to be 18 degrees and <laughs> Trey's parents were just laughing in the back of the car <laughs> it's like 18 degrees yeah. it's not unbearable <laughs> for them that's winter like that's the height of winter in Cyprus is 18 degrees you know <laughs> yeah yeah it did amuse me because at one point you text me saying that Andreas mum was wearing a hoodie yeah and I think yeah. that was one of the points at which I was literally just lying like <laughs> in a bath with ice in it just trying not to <laughs> Yeah. Melt. Melt. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's been similar for us. Like, Andreas and I are walking around in shorts and short sleeves, and Andreas' mom is walking around with a hoodie and a scarf when we go outside. <laughs> oh, bless her. Oh, well. We all deal with temperatures differently. I have yeah. to keep reminding myself. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, before we continue, here is your spoiler alert. The book we are discussing today will have full spoilers, and if you would like to read this book and have not yet, then I suggest you pause now, go read it, and then come back. Yes. So this week we read Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel, and I will tell you a little bit about her before we continue with the episode proper. So, Emily St. John Mandel is Canadian novelist and essayist. She's written six novels, 
The best known one is probably called uh, Station Eleven that she published in 2014 and has since been adapted into an HBO show. Her most recent one before this was The Glass Hotel, which apparently was selected by Barack Obama as one of his favorite books from 2020. And she also writes essays and articles for The Millions, which is an online magazine. She's won a number of awards, including the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Station Eleven. And I found out that she also likes statistics relating to novels. So she's written a couple of articles um, where she goes through like the Goodreads database to see how many novels there are with a specific title. Um, One of them is she wanted to know how many novels there are with the title The Something's Daughter and tried to find out why are there suddenly so many novels with this title and also books with the word girl in the title, which I found really interesting. So it's stuff like Gone Girl or, you know, The Girl on the Train, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Apparently Mm. these have kind of become really popular in the last 20 years. Mm. And one of her findings was that if the author of the book is male and the title has the word girl in it, said girl is significantly more likely to end up dead in the novel than if if the novel was written by a woman. Wow. Which, I mean, is a bit sad. Oh, that's interesting. Don't really know if there's that much else. She's in her 40s. She's married. She has one child. I found out, actually, that this book that we read, Sea of Tranquility, is kind of a loose continuation of The Glass Hotel, which Mm -hmm. came out in 2020. Because the Glass Hotel deals specifically with the Ponzi scheme that uh, one of the characters from this book keeps referring to. So, um, Yes, I think I read that one of the characters in this book, one of the main characters in this book, is one of the characters in stage, uh, the Glass Hotel. Yep. And I think there's some relationship to Station Eleven as well, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was. It sounded like it was almost like a parallel universe to this one. Yeah, I didn't find too many details. All I found out is that Station Eleven is also kind of a post-apocalyptic novel Mm. about... A pandemic. A world, yeah, after Mm. a virus or a pandemic. Um, I tried to find out if there were some characters who were in both books, but I couldn't find any clear references, so I'm mm. not sure. Yeah, it's just interesting that she wrote that one, Station Eleven, back in 2014, mm. and Sea of Tranquility was published this year, so she wrote Sea of Tranquility during the actual pandemic lockdown. Mm. Um, so that was interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's about all I found out about her. Very good. Any idea why you chose the book? Good question. I think I found it on Goodreads. And it was like one of the most anticipated releases for 2022. And we were just discussing about making this season more recent publications. So the blurb sounded quite interesting. I liked the cover. I think I think that was the main reason, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
no deeper reason. I haven't read anything by her before. I'd never heard of her before. Same. So I'll read the blurb, shall I? Mm-hmm. Or is there anything that you want to add about her? No, I, you've, you've covered everything that I had looked up. Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel A novel of art, time, love and plague that takes the reader from Vancouver Island in 1912 to a dark colony on the moon 300 years later, unfurling a story of humanity across centuries and space. Edwin St. Andrew is 18 years old when he crosses the Atlantic by steamship, exiled from polite society following an ill-conceived diatribe at a dinner party. He enters the forest, spellbound by the beauty of the Canadian wilderness, and suddenly hears the notes of a violin echoing in an airship terminal, an experience that shocks him to his core. Two centuries later, a famous writer named Olive Llewellyn is on a book tour. She's traveling all over Earth, but her home is the second moon colony, a place of white stone, spired towers, and artificial beauty. Within the text of Olive's best-selling pandemic novel lies a strange passage. A man plays his violin for change in the echoing corridor of an airship terminal as the trees of a forest rise around him. When Gasperi Jacques Roberts, a detective in the Night City, is hired to investigate an anomaly in the North American wilderness, he uncovers a series of lives upended. The exiled son of an earl driven to madness a writer trapped far from home as a pandemic ravages Earth, and a childhood friend from the Night City, who, like Gasperi himself, has glimpsed the chance to do something extraordinary that will disrupt the timeline of the universe. The end. <laughs> the end. Nice. <laughs> yes. So, what star rating would you give it? I'm hovering around three, three and a half stars. Interesting. How about you? I'm hovering around four, four and a half stars. Oh, very good. Yeah. Por qué? I, I quite like time travel books. I quite like that this was sort of a science fiction book, but there wasn't too much science. So mm -hmm. it's, it's officially called speculative fiction. And I quite like the structure of it, where it jumped ahead in time, and then it went back to where we had been. Um, I thought it was quite interesting. I didn't see the sort of revelation about the universe that we were given. It's given me a bit of food for thought. I really mm -hmm. enjoyed it from that point of view. Um, maybe knock a few stars off, or a not a few stars, a half star or a star off, depending on probably how this conversation goes. <laughs> um, just because it was a really short book, which was a good thing, but it, I, I think it was also slightly underdeveloped in places. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with you there. I felt that I liked the concept, I liked the story. I thought it flowed really well. The pacing was good. There wasn't any point at which I was bored. I was engaged from the beginning. I found some elements to be 
a little predictable, which is why I'm going to knock off a half a star or a star. And I also found all of the characters quite underdeveloped. So, again, I couldn't really relate to any of them so much. You don't really find out much about their personalities. It's all just kind of factual experiences, kind of like what we were talking about when we were talking about the first 15 lies of Harry August. Mm. So that kind of bothered me a little bit. I liked that it was about a pandemic, but maybe it's... I don't know if it's still too early to be talking about a pandemic when we're still technically in Mm. a pandemic, but, you know, it had references to things that were happening two years ago in our own lives that kind of made me go back and think, oh, God, yeah, that that Mm -hmm. was a thing that we all went through at some point. I generally am a bit lukewarm when it comes to time travel stories, mostly because I find them really confusing Mm -hmm. when it's done the way that it's done in this book, where you have actual overlap between characters. And I think that's why I preferred kind of Harry August, because it's... It's not really time travel, everything resets. Whereas here, you know, we find out by the end of the book that actually the trigger or whatever for this inconsistency in the timeline is one character who we've been following throughout the book and he kind of meets himself in the future. And it was Mm -hmm. a little bit, it went a little bit over my head, let's put it that way. I'm I'm very (laughs) (laughs) simple-minded. Well, I don't think that's true. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so for these reasons, I would... I might be inclined to give it four, kind of based on what this conversation feels like, as you've said. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Cool. So the last time we discussed a book, we did it by character first. Did you want Mm -hmm. to do that again? Yep, let's do that again. So... This book is kind of told from the point of view of numerous characters Mm -hmm. at different times, because as we've already said, there is time travel. It starts kind of in 1912, and we go all the way to 2400 and something. Mm -hmm. So the first character that we meet is Edwin, and Edwin has been exiled to Canada by his very rich parents, from the UK, because he dared to posit that maybe the countries that the British Empire is colonizing don't actually want to be colonized um, at a dinner party, and this did not go down well. Mm -hmm. Yes, because his parents were from, they had been in India. Yes, exactly. And his mother especially remembered her time very fondly, Mm -hmm. and was shocked to discover that perhaps the, you know, people who were already in India before the British got there didn't particularly want British overlords. Mm-hmm. So, what did you think of Edwin? Um, I really liked him. It introduced a new concept to me that I hadn't heard of before, which was that of the remittance man. Mm-hmm. So I looked it up and the official, sort of official definition of it is an immigrant living in Canada on funds remitted by family in England to ensure he would not return home and become a source of embarrassment. So oh. apparently, before World War One, uh, after mm-hmm. after Canada was colonised by the British, and then before World War One happened, 
there were lots of these remittance men who were basically the black sheep of the family, often the younger sons and often the ones who had the conflicting worldviews. So I found that interesting from a historical point of view. And then also, because I hadn't read the blurb and I didn't know what the book was about, I was, you know, I love historic fiction, so I was really like, oh yeah, this is cool. And then was a little bit baffled when it jumped away from Edwin into the future. But to be honest, I think he was probably one of my more favourite characters because he probably had more character development than any of the others. Mm -hmm. Except for maybe Olive. But again... I probably would have liked to have learned more about him, especially his later life after World War One. We revisit him very briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, he was very—he was based on one of her, one of Mandel's great great grandfathers, according to Wikipedia. Oh, okay. I didn't. I didn't see that. Yeah, I liked Edwin as well. Like, I thought he was quite funny. Mm. But, like, how to say this? Not because he was trying to be funny. I think it's just the, you know, the kinds of conversations and his kind of sarcasm when he was talking to his parents about certain topics I mm-hmm. found to be quite humorous. And I'd also never heard of this remittance man. And I didn't Google it. I just hadn't come across the word remittance before, so I just looked it up on my ebook reader and it didn't really give me the history of it. It just said, like, I don't even know what it said. Mm. So it's interesting to know that it, this is an actual real historical thing and that these men were being sent specifically to Canada. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think Edwin, he's the youngest mm-hmm. son. He has two older brothers. Gilbert is going to inherit everything from... His father, I think he's going to be an earl or a duke or something. And then the middle son has been sent to Australia. I don't know if he's also been sent there because of some different worldviews or if he's just been sent there because that was the thing to do. I don't don't know. know. Yeah. But yes, Edwin has been sent to Canada and told in no uncertain terms that he's never supposed to come back. (laughs) Yes. To England. But... What I find funny about this is that he's not being fully cut off from the family because he's still receiving an allowance mm. from his parents. So, And by the sounds of it, a generous allowance as well. Yeah, because he's not in any rush to find a job or to find anything to do when he mm. gets to Canada. He's perfectly happy to just sit around and look out the window of his mm-hmm. hotel and learn how to draw, which I suppose if I think about it more kind of is like me Mm. like if I'm not forced to do something I just won't do anything I'll just sit around and read Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I could I could empathize with him Mm. Mm. yeah I empathized with him as well because I you know you you really did get the impression that he was sort of trying to figure himself out and figure out what he wanted and what to do and I I feel like I'm always trying to figure that out (laughs) Yeah, so he is the first character who experiences this, um, what do they call it? Anomaly. Anomaly, thank you, yes. Wherein he's now in some remote village in the Canadian wilderness. He's walking through the forest. He sees this large maple tree. And when he approaches it, there's this break 
in time and space, I suppose, because despite the fact that he's in Canada, he can hear violin music, he can hear some kind of whooshing sound that has no source in the wilderness. And then he meets Priest Roberts. Mm-hmm. What did we think of Priest Roberts? It all became clear later, but it was a little... It was really confusing in the first part of the book. It was just a bit like, mm-hmm. what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that kind of intrigued me and then made me sad when we skipped to the next time. Mm-hmm. So did you find Priest Roberts suspicious from the get-go? or yes. did you? Okay, good. Yeah. Did you? Uh, yes, I think I did. Especially when... I mean, it's... It's already a bit suspicious because he kind of comes out of nowhere. Mm. He's just suddenly in the forest. Mm-hmm. And then Edwin is quite smart about it because he's questioning him already. Is like, well, how did you get here? How could you possibly be replacing the other priest? Mm-hmm. You know, this is such a small village. If if the priest had left, I would have heard about it by now mm-hmm. kind of thing. And then, yeah, he just disappears again. So, yeah, I was pretty suspicious of him. I wasn't sure who he was or mm. what he was doing there, but obviously not not the priest, not the new priest. Yeah. So then we jump to 2020 mm-hmm. and we meet, is it Mirella? Yep. So what did you think of Mirella? Can you tell us a bit about her? Um, so she was um, one of the characters that featured in The Glass Hotel and she had she was trying to find her friend Vincent, who was the wife of this guy who had done the Ponzi scheme, also known as a pyramid scheme. And Mirella's husband had invested heavily in this, and then when it had all collapsed, the they had lost everything and her husband had killed himself and Vincent's husband had run away to Dubai. And Morello didn't believe that Vincent couldn't have known about the scheme, so she stopped talking to her. And then when we meet her here, she's starting to have second thoughts about that and think maybe she could have been living in ignorance because she found out about somebody who had a family living literally across the road where the wife was completely oblivious. Um, So she's trying to find Vincent but can't find any trace of her and she ends up discovering that Vincent's brother is giving a talk about some music that he's written or a piece of art that he's composed and this artwork is a video that was taken by Vincent when she was really little and it's clearly the same place that Edwin St. Johnson Andrew was because it shows the same woodlands, and then you hear the violin and the strange whooshing sound, and then there's confusion in the video. Mm-hmm. And then I think she goes to lunch and da 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 I, I think maybe if I had read The Glass Hotel, I would have felt more strongly about Vincent, but, uh, sorry, Morella, but I was a little bit just like, you know by that point, suspicious about the anomaly and more interested in finding out what that was rather than about the particular characters. And I think that's, again, what we've already said, that some of them are come across fairly poorly developed. Mm-hmm. And it was quite narrative. 
So it was sort of... There was a little bit of musing, I suppose, about whether or not she'd been unfair to Vincent. But it was mostly just like, this is what happened with my husband. Now I'm going to this concert thing. Uh, and then I'm ending up having coffee with the composer and meeting this other bloke. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was... I think for me it mostly just served the purpose of moving the story on rather than Mirella being a particularly interesting character. Hmm. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think she was the least developed and possibly the least important, even though we do meet her again. Mm. I wonder if she was just kind of put there so that we could be in 2020, which is when the author was kind of writing this book. Mm -hmm. It was just before the pandemic hit and we even get a comment from Gasperi Roberts who is one of the men who is also having lunch with this composer and he's just like oh yeah no I forgot we're in January 2020 uh, COVID-19 isn't a thing yet yes <laughs> which was quite funny to see yeah but yeah I I feel kind of ambivalent about her Mm. Like you said already, we don't really find out much about her. So, yeah. Yeah, I think maybe maybe it was sort of deliberate because perhaps Mandel either assumes that people have already read The Glass Hotel and know more about uh, Morella, or, you know, I am slightly intrigued to now go and read The Glass Hotel, given that it has a recurring place and... Um, because the the little town in British Columbia where the anomaly is seen uh, mm-hmm. is the same town where the Glass Hotel is set. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it kind of feels like maybe she was mostly put in to serve as a link for Gasperi's character more than anything else. Yeah. So that we start picking up on the fact that he seems to be popping up at different times. And, ooh, this is all very mysterious. Because yes. she has this conversation with him after they all have lunch with Vincent's brother. And she says that she remembers having seen Gasperi when she was a child. And Gasperi doesn't remember this. Yeah. And then, of course, we find out later why he wouldn't have remembered. But, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, so I don't really have much else to say about her. Move on then. Yeah. Because then we flash forward again to 2203 to possibly maybe even the funniest and most exhausting sections of the book, (laughs) which is (laughs) the last book tour on Earth. Yeah. And this is told from the point of view of Olive, who is a best-selling author who is touring Earth because there is a new edition of her novel coming out. And her novel is about pandemics. And just as she's doing her book tour, there is a new pandemic emerging in Australia. (laughs) Yeah. So, what did you think of Olive? So, I, I have sort of two thoughts about her. One, while I was reading the book... And then the other from afterwards, I'm doing some research about her. So mm-hmm. during, I thought I, I was interested in what she was doing, and it was quite um, 
it was quite... I think I enjoyed that speculative part of it a lot because we are now in that era where people who have written books po about pandemics before COVID-19, you know, are sort of in the same boat as Olive. And I think I'm finding it interesting that we're now getting novels that reference COVID-19 coming out or pandemics you know they've got a much more I guess disaster disaster movie type focus because of everything the world has been through in the last two years and yes I would agree with you it was a pr pretty exhausting part of the book she was flying here there and everywhere and it was you know you really felt her she, like she didn't know which hotel she was in she described them by their colours and mm. all that sort of thing and then I did some research Mm -hmm. And it turns out that Olive is a pretty autobiographical character who mm -hmm. is basically a stand-in for Mandel because after she had written Station Eleven, which was published in 2014, COVID-19 happened and Station Eleven became much more popular. Mm -hmm. um, and it was picked up by, I think, HBO for a series and so what Olive is experiencing is basically exactly what Mandel was experiencing at the time, which I found interesting. I think for a lot of people, that's really negative. If I, you know, I was looking at the negative reviews on Goodreads and there were loads of people who thought thought it was too, too much of a gimmick. But given that I only figured that out after I read it, like I would, you know, I don't know. I thought it was really interesting to mm -hmm. be able to draw a direct comparison between the author's life experience and the story in the book. Mm. What did you think of Olive? I liked Olive. When I was reading uh, her chapters, it didn't occur to me that it might be autobiographical, but I, like in hindsight, it makes perfect sense and it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, I found it really interesting. It seems like we've read quite a few books about books or, you know, books about authors yeah. for the podcast. And each time we do, I feel like I learn something new about an author's life or like the publishing process and everything. And this was certainly mostly about, I suppose, the marketing aspect and, you know, the fact that if you become quite a... yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, going on book tours and everything, being interviewed, et cetera, et cetera. So... I liked Olive. I I found her chapters good. Um, don't really know what else to say about her, to be honest. One of the um, things that I really liked about her is that while she's doing this book tour, there's this pandemic in Australia and she is supposed to die and never make it back to the moon, which is where she lives now. Mm. But through the magic of time travel, she gets warned about that and doesn't die and ends up going back to the moon and meeting, you know, seeing her husband and her daughter again and they get locked down. And I think that's where some of the more interesting parts of it come because that that is where you do get directly reminded of what it was like to be in lockdown and to, to you know, all be sh shut inside and there to be... Uh, patrols out and curfews and people not allowed out of their house more than once a day and all of that stuff. 
Mm. Um, but the way that it was written, I thought was really nice. It was it was quite lyrical. Yeah, I I agree with you there. What I found interesting, so we already kind of touched on this, but in the year two thousand two hundred and three, in this book at least, we've already colonized the moon. As in, when I say we, I mean humans. Yeah. And Olive was born and lives most of her life on the moon. And she has just come to Earth for this book tour, uh, which I also found quite interesting. It's, you know, it's kind of that if you live in America and then you come to Europe to do a book tour, but now you live on the moon and you've come to Earth to do a book tour kind yes. of thing. <laughs> I found it, okay, this is getting kind of off topic about Olive, but I liked that the names of the countries were a bit different. So, you ha- you know, you didn't really have the United States of America anymore. You kind of, they were all their individual republics. So you had like the Republic of Texas and then yep. you had something for California. I don't remember what they were called. In terms of Olive, I did find it interesting. Like, I thought she was a really smart person, a really smart character. I liked all of her presentations and how she answered questions from journalists, Mm. which is why it struck me as a little bit strange that despite the fact that she was an expert on pandemics and there was an outbreak happening in Australia, that she wasn't really taking it too seriously and just kept on going as if everything was fine. What did you think? I wonder if that's referencing the fact, like, so, for example, I'm convinced that I had COVID before we knew that COVID was a thing because Mm -hmm. it was happening in China, but we weren't getting the news over here. And it was the December before, so it was December 2019. I had all exactly the same symptoms. Um, My mum then caught it and she still hasn't got her sense of smell back. Um... So I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure it was COVID. And yet, apparently, it only made it to the UK three months later. So I wonder mm-hmm. if it's something like that, where it's it's all about the propaganda and making reference to the fact that uh, politicians or the news media or, you know, whatever, they have a duty to inform people. And if they don't, these are the consequences. Mm-hmm. Because while there's a, you know, it it was the same when Ebola happened. So Ebola was mostly in Central East Africa. And again, we didn't really find out too much about it because it wasn't affecting us directly. But if it had been more contagious than it was, and it had spread, it would have suddenly become a big deal. But it would have already been too late by then to stop it from spreading because mm. because we hadn't been adequately warned about it. Yeah, like, I I get what you're saying, but it just seems to me that for her specifically, for her character specifically, this is already post, yeah, this is already post-COVID and other pandemics, like, (laughs) it's not as if it was just COVID-19 and then nothing happened for 200 years and now we have another pandemic in this book. Things have been happening, but she's still not taking it as seriously as I thought she would be, is all I'm saying. Yeah. And needs to be warned specifically by a time traveler to kind of catch on to the fact that, oh, maybe I should leave Earth. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting thought. Plot device, eh? Yeah, kind of. (laughs) Like, it feels... Exactly. Like, I feel like what you've said is completely right. I think she was being used 
as a character to comment on what happened in real life with yeah. COVID-19. I just didn't think it was appropriate in this setting. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, then she goes... So she's warned by our time traveler, Gasperi, that she should leave Earth. And so she does. She goes back to the moon and... She's already in a full panic and she's calling her husband and she's telling him to get their daughter out of school and she's stocking up on food and everything and her husband thinks she's kind of overreacting. But then the same day that she gets back to the moon, it is confirmed that the pandemic has reached the moon as well and mm. they go into full lockdown. And yeah, full lockdown. <laughs> Just flashbacks to <laughs> the uh, monotony of every day. Oh, that was a crazy time, wasn't it? Yeah. And then we had the Zoom meetings. They don't have Zoom anymore because it's 200 years in the future. So they have like hollow space and holographic projections. And so she's continuing doing like the book tour, but not in person anymore. And it's just day after day, the same things over and over she can't leave her house. They're counting the numbers. Like, I don't know if you did this, but at the beginning, you know, every day was a, like a numbers game of how many new cases, how many new de deaths. And mm. we were just obsessed with like that element of it. I don't know if you were the same. Yeah, I think I got pretty sick of it pretty quickly. Um, but but it was, you know, it was because when we first got told, so our, my work shut the offices before the rest of, you know, before the government decided that we should all go into lockdown. Mm -hmm. And I can remember at the time somebody saying, oh, you know, I've heard it might last for three months. And we were all like, Psh, no. Um, so at the beginning, I was really like, oh, my God, you know, is this as bad as we think it is? And then by the time the ennui set in, I was just like, cool, we're in this for the long haul. Let's not focus mm. too much on it. <laughs> Yeah, I think we were pretty convinced that it was only going to be like a two-week kind of thing, you know, like a precaution. We'll lock down for two weeks. And because at that time, I think everyone was saying that it has an incubation period of two weeks or something. So it felt like, okay, if nobody meets anybody for two weeks, we're going to get rid of this thing. So we all just kind of shut down our computers on a Friday. And we were like, okay, we'll see you in two weeks. And then it was three months or four months or however long yeah. when we started going back to work. Yeah. I mean, there's people that I will never see again, probably, because they left my work in that time or, you know, whatever. Mm. Like, um, it was a really long time before my office started opening up again. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's weird. It's, it is weird. Anyway, back to the book. Anyway, yes. Anything else? I think the other thing though, about Olive is that, you know, as, as awful as things are, I think on some level, she's possibly even a bit grateful, not only for the fact that he, her life was saved, but, you know, she gets to spend all this time with her daughter. And that's one of the good things, I suppose, that maybe came out of this pandemic for some people, that you, you get to spend time with your kids in a way that you'll never be able to again. There was a game that she invented with... Um with her daughter whose name I don't remember where they they would go on a you know fictional journey and they'd sort of pick a place and then they'd do loads of research onto it and look up videos and pictures and I thought that was really 
nice. I wonder if that's something that she did with her daughter. Hmm. She being Mandel. But she keeps coming back to the fact that she was supposed to die. Yes. In the pandemic. And she's been given kind of a second chance. Yeah. Anything else on Olive? The title of her book is Marie and Bad, which is apparently based on a play that exists now. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. it's like an homage to the play. That's the only other thing that I sort of picked out of my mm. head and reading. So Olive, Olive's book, Marie and Bad, has got a small time character called Gaspary Jacques. Yes. And that is the name of our next character. Yes. Who is from 2400 something? Yep. Right. Tell us about Gasperi then. So he is, uh, he lives on the moon in the same colony as Olive did, except it's now become known as the Night City because the holograms that simulated day have broken and so it's always dark unless mm-hmm. it's on the sun side. And he's a security man, basically for a hotel security... uh, I think they call him a hotel detective, which, you know, he's essentially just a security man. I'll be honest, at the beginning, I was a little bit like I don't really get what this character is for, because he's sort of going on about Natalia, his uh, a girl who lived in a house, in the house that Olive lived in, actually. And so... You know, he's quite interested in her and they go to school together and then he meets her later on and when he's working in the hotel. And then he becomes this time traveller. Mm-hmm. So he's probably the most heavily featured character in the book. But again, quite underdeveloped. There wasn't really yeah. anything compelling about him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think he was, uh, I found him quite interesting, like, I quite liked him as a character, but yeah, he felt, he felt quite like a blank slate almost, like there wasn't anything about him, like he wasn't particularly interested in anything in any way, his job was kind of just his job, but then he discovers this possibility of becoming a time traveler and working for the Time Institute. And that's that kind of becomes his driving thing. Yeah. Um, and he finds out through his sister Zoe, who works at the Time Institute. So did you catch on to all the references to Gasperi before we actually meet him as a character in his own chapters? I think it was when Morella sees him as a child that I started mm-hmm. being suspicious about him. But I was, you know, until it kind of became pretty obvious, <laughs> um, I was a little bit like, uh, maybe this is just another character and it's a coincidence because he's named after this person in the book and maybe the other one was, you know, somehow linked but not the same. So it, t- it did take me a little while to figure out <laughs> who he was. Yeah, I think for me, when he's interviewing... Olive, that's kind of when I clocked on to he must be a time traveler. 
because he asks her specifically about she has a scene in the not only does she have a character in the book called Gasperi Jacques Roberts, she also has a scene in the book where one of her characters is at this airship station and she hears the violin music and is transported to a different time and different place. So when Gasperi is interviewing her under the guise of being just a journalist on her book tour, he references that specific scene in the book and asks her if something happened to her at an airship terminal. And that was like, that's kind of when I was like, Mm. I think he must be a time traveler. Yeah. But I did not see it coming. The big revelation at the end. I think we're going to skip ahead now. Yeah. And the fact that he is not only a time traveler, but he is also the old man who is playing the violin at the airship terminal. (laughs) Yes. I did not see that coming either. I thought that was pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, I like that as well. So there's, through Gasperi and his sister Zoe, we find out about simulation theory. Mm-hmm. Yes. Had you ever heard of it before? Um, Not under this name, but it gave me really strong Matrix vibes. Yes. Yeah. Have you heard of it before? No, I hadn't. Um, apparently it's a really well-known thing. There have been sort of thoughts that it might be a thing since ancient Greek times. Apparently there are references to potentially us, you know, like, are we the subjects in a painting or something along those lines? I can't remember exactly what it was. Elon Mm -hmm. Musk is a believer in simulation theory. He's convinced that we live in a simulation. (laughs) And the way that it relates to this book is that there's a theory that the anomaly is bec- is a result of us living in a simulation. And mm-hmm. that's what sort of gets Gasperi all interested in it. And that made me do some heavy thinking. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yes, indeed. Because, you know, it it is like a... It kind of speaks to that question of why are we here? What are we for? What's the point in life? And, you mm-hmm. know, if it is all just a simulation... But then Gasperi makes a comment about it. Mm -hmm. Again, I wrote it down. A life lived in simulation is still a life. So does it matter if it is a simulation? Like, does what you do change? Yeah, it's an interesting question. To be perfectly honest with you, I hate existentialist questions like this. Mostly because they scare the crap out of me. Because <laughs> I, 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 I just, I don't like thinking about, you know... That stuff. Trying to find meaning behind why certain things happen, or, you know, what is death? What happens after death? Does, it, does any of it matter? Mm-hmm. So I don't think about it too much, mm-hmm. or at least I try to avoid it. But for the sake of the podcast, I will I will talk about it with you. Uh-huh. Um. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I really have no idea how I would react if, if somebody told me that, okay, everything is just a simulation, it's not real. I don't know if that would change my behavior. Probably on some level it feels like it, it would have to, because it's just such a life-shifting, altering realization. But I don't know what would change, really. Mm. I don't know. What do you think? I, to be honest, sort of 
I think I reached the conclusion some time ago that there isn't really much of a point and there's not too much point in worrying about what the point is because, Hmm. you know, there's nothing that we can really do about it. Maybe if I was religious, it would be different, but I'm not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I kind of feel the same as you. I, I don't feel like there needs to be a point, but at the same time, I don't know if admire is the right word, but like... If people find solace or some kind of inner peace from the belief in something, then, you know, good for them. Yeah. I just don't think that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've had some really bad things happen in my life, and there's nothing that pisses me off more than if somebody tells me that it happened for some kind of reason. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'd rather there just isn't any reason because then what, 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 what is that reason you're saying I'm being punished for something or that this is mm. for some kind of greater good, my, my pain and suffering. I, you know, I, I don't like these kinds yeah. of. No, I agree with you. Um, yeah, but it is an interesting theory. I don't think we are ever really given an answer in the book of whether or not it is a simulation. I choose to see it as it's not. It's just. An anomaly because of the time travel. But I don't know. How did you read it? Did you read it as it being a simulation? I think I think I read it as the conclusion that Gaspari came to was that it was a simulation, but that he didn't care. Mm, okay. I think, again, when I was reading, reading around it afterwards, people were referring to the anomaly as a software glitch. Yeah. Which I think I maybe would have been on board with, but... Yeah, I am pretty similar to you. I think we, I think both of us are probably like protecting ourselves with ignorance in many ways, <laughs> and I'm all right with that, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I that so that realization comes at the very very end yeah. of the novel. I think it's even like the last line, and I found that really like a really jarring ending. It just ended. And to me, it kind of felt unfinished. Yeah, you're right, actually. I can remember sort of, like, rebooting my Kindle or, you know, checking to see if I had missed something. I think I maybe didn't find it as jarring as you because I was in the bath when I finished it and I was ready to get out and I was only staying there until I finished the book. <laughs> so I was like, okay, cool, I'm finished, I can get out now. <laughs> yeah. Because, so at the end of the book... The last few chapters is when we find out that Gasperi is the old man Yep. in the airship terminal and he is interviewing himself. Mm-hmm. So that is what causes the anomaly because you have the same two person. of the same person at the same time in the same place and it causes some kind of a glitch, as you said. Yeah. And I found it, <laughs> I found it funny because the old Gasperi is kind of amusingly watching his younger self just kind of make a complete <laughs> fool of himself <laughs> fool of himself during this interview is like how he thought he was so clever but you know he's just gonna trick him he's gonna ask him questions that he knows that his younger self doesn't really know the answers to or you know that he struggles with he's gonna quote Shakespeare at him because he knows that his younger self doesn't know Shakespeare yet so it was quite meta and quite funny yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, I I did I did enjoy it. I I think probably the end of the book was my favorite bit. To be honest, apart from you know right at the end, I think so what happens is that Gasparri breaks the rules because he tells um the rules of time travel because he tells Olive that she's going to die and then he tells um he tells Edwin St. John's and Andrew about the influenza p- epidemic the Spanish flu? Mm, no. No, he just tells him that what he experienced in the forest was real. So that he wouldn't go to a mental asylum. But I think when he went to the mental asylum, asylum he caught the... he caught the. Yes, but we find out that he, he dies anyway, just like 30 days later instead of three days later. Yeah. Okay, all right, fine. Well, anyway, he, he breaks the rules then anyway. And so Gasparri then gets sent back to when Mirella is a daughter, is a is a young girl and he is framed as killing two people and sent to jail. Mm-hmm. And then through some other magic plot devices, his sister rescues him and takes him back to Oklahoma City and there he meets he becomes a bit of a recluse and then meets Talia again, Natalia, who lived in that house and they get married and fall in love and all that jazz. And I think <laughs> I think from the point at which he got framed for shooting the two people to the end of the book, I was most satisfied by the whole thing. That felt like, you know, actual character development. Yes. Like that's when stuff was actually happening to him. He was forming relationships, etc., etc., he was having, you know, internal debates about should I have done this thing? Do I regret doing it? Why did I warn her, him, etc. Mm. Um, so yeah, I like the last few chapters as well. Yeah, I found it interesting this concept of the fact that there are numerous time travelers. He's not the only one who's traveled through time, and that if any of them break the rules of telling people that time travel is real, or if they make large changes to the timeline that they can get lost in time, which is basically what the Time Institute does to him, as you've said. Yes. They frame him for a murder on Earth in a time when he's not supposed to exist, and then he gets stuck there because he can't come back to the moon or to the future. What did you think of his sister and Talia? We'll lump them together because they're not major characters. Yeah, I like them both, I guess. Like, there wasn't any character apart from maybe Morella whom I didn't like or that I felt ambivalent to. But again, mm-hmm. like, it's it's hard to say much about them because, okay, Zoe, she's kind of described as, you know, this really driven, very smart woman. She works at the, the Time Institute. She's a physicist. I think she fell in love with a time traveler who got stuck in time mm. or something. Mm-hmm. But we don't really find out much more about her. She's the one who reaches out to Gasperi because... She finds out about this glitch and she starts questioning of, are we living in a simulation? Mm. And that's what kind of gives Gasperi the impetus to join the Institute. Yeah. Talia, I don't know. She's she's the daughter of time travelers. Is so she? So she's also... Yeah, I think at some point she... Or at least her father was or something. Or yes, I think that, ring, that rings a bell, actually. And then she's sent to Earth and kind of is stuck there 
as punishment for the fact that she's spreading state secrets or something because she's she's told Gasperi about mm. aspects of time travel or something. Mm. Yeah. yeah. What did you think of them? I think a scene that sort of sticks out to me is it's uh, Zoe's birthday and Gasperi stops and gets a bunch of flowers and some cakes and takes that to her and I was like oh that's the most sort of normal thing that's happened in this entire book yeah <laughs> uh, yeah but yeah I I don't know I think I'm a bit ambivalent to to them as characters and they were again just to proceed the plot I feel like I've been really negative about about the, about it but I did actually really enjoy it I think it was just such a short book that there was, and there was so mm. much going on that it would have been really difficult for her to stay within whatever her target word count was for mm. a sh- for a short novel and do much more development than she did. I think what I liked about Zoe and Gasperi maybe as as siblings is that I don't know. Well, what do I know? I don't have any siblings, but you know, they kind of grew apart and mm. you had these moments of they were both really different. And Gasperi was kind of always questioning, well, when is the last time that I actually hugged my sister? Or, oh, I wonder if she still likes red velvet cake mm. like she used to. And, you know, he has these kinds of memories of their childhood and living across the street from where Olive used to live. And I like them as siblings together, but individually, we don't really see Zoe individually, so we don't really know anything about her motivations. I think she's mostly having kind of an existential crisis and turns to Gasperi as a sounding board, maybe. So I have a question for you. Okay. If we were to colonize the moon, would you move to the moon? Probably not. I would want to visit the moon mm-hmm. and see what it was all about, but I wouldn't want to colonize it that's just entirely my very deep-seated hatred of moving I have moved a lot in my life I I was saying to Will the other day I've lived with him for just over two years and it's the longest I've lived anywhere since I was 17 um in terms of you know a home Mm -hmm. and I am quite resistant now to uphauling my life again and starting all over again but I would be really interested to see it and I would have no issues with my children going. Um, or, you know, I think as a, as a, as, as humans, we have a bit of an obsession with escaping the planet because we know that eventually the sun's going to explode because science. <laughs> and <laughs> so I, th- I think it's quite, um, interesting i think i personally think mars would be a more likely candidate for colonization because it's more earth-like than the moon which is essentially a lump of rock but then again mars is essentially a lump of rock and they would both need loads of terraforming and oh i don't know i it's an interesting question i think the answer remains no how about you i don't think i would want to be one of the first people to move there So, you know, I wouldn't want to be the colonizer or the person who's supposed to now, like, progress humankind on the moon. But if I lived in a time when it's already been kind of set up and it's been proven to me that traveling to the moon is a safe thing to do, then maybe. Mm -hmm. 
I, I've also moved a lot in my life, but I think maybe unlike you, it hasn't kind of lost its appeal yes. for me yet. Like, I wouldn't mind moving again. I know it'll be stressful. I know I will not like it in the moment, but that's not enough to deter me from saying I will never move again. Yes. Because, I mean, we're we're already kind of low-key planning to move at some point anyway, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I think I think one of my big things as well is that I just love nature so much. Mm. And I can't imagine a scenario where we'd ever have forests and, you know, things like that. I may be completely wrong, but... Yeah, because at least in this book, the way that it's set up, they've kind of built these domes mm. on the moon and everything within the domes is kind of controlled to be kind of like an Earth-like environment. But everything outside is just rock as we know it, as we know the moon to look like. Mm -hmm. um, and they've made rivers, I think, and like you have kind of, you have trees and everything, but yeah, every like... It's all within the dome and... Yeah, yeah. And like you've said, like daylight and nighttime is controlled by the pixels on the on the domes and everything. It's like this big screen and mm. once it breaks down for whatever reason they decide it's not worth it to fix it because it costs too much, which is also <laughs> reminiscent of things here. Like the buzzer for our apartment for our whole apartment building has been non-functional for the last three months. And for whatever reason, the management company has decided that it's not worth their time oh or effort God. to fix it. <laughs> so we never know if we have parcels that have arrived. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> why do you think it was called Sea of Tranquility? I know why it was called Sea of Tranquility. So go on. the settlement on the moon, one of the settlements, I'm not sure which one, I think maybe the one that eventually becomes the Night City, is located in a part of the um, moon that is called Mare Tranquility or something. Mm -hmm. It's the French. The French thing. Uh, I've got it up somewhere. And anyway, it's just... Uh, the novel is named after Mare Tranquillitatis, a lunar mare. Mm -hmm. And it's just the translation of that. Yeah. It is the site of the first moon landing, basically. Ah, okay, fine. Interesting. Which is where they also formed the colony, because I think there is also the, the reference to that the the American flag that it's was planted there. on the moon is still there. Yeah. Mm. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? No, not really. Um... We've talked mostly about the characters, but I feel like we've touched upon the main elements of the plot. Uh, did your book also have like a discussion guide at the end? Ah, so I have some questions and topics for discussion. So I might flip through those and see if there's anything. Ah, interesting question. If you were in Gasperi's shoes, would you have changed the past to save Olive and help Edwin? God, I've no idea. Probably not because I would be too scared of getting in trouble. <laughs> would you? Ah, it's a really interesting philosophical question again, because that's the problem, right? That they tell him from the beginning that the hardest part about being a time traveler or doing his job is that you know everything about everyone that you will encounter. So you know exactly when they die, you know how they die, and you have to kind of stop yourself from getting emotionally attached. 
And I get emotionally touched very easily. So、mm. I don't know if I would be able to stop myself from, you know, trying to save these people. So I, I don't know. I think I would really struggle with it.、Mm. I think he did the right thing because that's the next question. So do you, did you think he did the right thing? I think he did because he did, well, I mean, he did save Olive's life. That is undeniable. Yeah. Whether or not he really helped Edwin. I think for his own mental health, he did because Edwin was kind of questioning his sanity. He thought he'd kind of gone crazy. But, like, the influenza got him anyway. It just got him a bit later. So maybe at least he gave him some kind of peace for those extra 30 days that he got. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is where we start getting all existential again because,、mm. you know, like you, I've had some. Pre- Pretty awful things happen, and I'm happy in my life right now. And so, if you asked me, would I go back and change the things that had happened? It would have such a massive effect, I would not be where I am today because it would have just been completely different.、Mm. And on a selfish level, I'd be a bit scared to. Make that change because maybe I wouldn't then be where I am today. Maybe things would have turned out worse, but maybe they would have turned out better and I wouldn't have had the trauma. So it's something、mm. that I worry about when I think about it, which is again why I don't really think about it <laughs> because because I don't know what the right thing to do would be. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I think for me. Maybe because it's still so fresh.、Mm. If I could go back and change it, I definitely would. Yeah. The, th- the problem for both of us is that it was the things that happened were preventable. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, you know, both things that we want to change would directly benefit us. Yeah. In a way, whereas for Gasperi, there is no real. He's not doing it for himself,、mm. you know, he's doing it. To help those two people. Yeah. So I think it's maybe a slightly different situation. I don't know. Yeah, I think, yeah. Like, if you could stop the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, would you, or would the war have started anyway? Like, yeah. Yeah, I guess in this book, she put in that kind of caveat like, if the change that you make in the timeline doesn't directly affect the Time Institute itself, They kind of let it slide. Yeah. But if you make like a really big change and that has some cascading event that does something to the Time Institute,、mm. then they will punish you. Yeah. Or they will try to、um, stop it from happening. Fix the timeline somehow. Yeah. 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 It's weird that I like time travel stuff so much given how <laughs> like terrified I actually am of thinking too deeply about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, maybe last question. Would you read anything by her? I think I, again? I think I might be quite interested in reading The Glass Hotel. I think it was maybe quite a bland book from a, all of the themes that we've been exploring more recently in terms of equality and human rights and all of that stuff. But if I'm looking for some relief from all of that heavy thinking stuff, I might then read. I think The Glass Hotel probably appeals to me the most because I am quite interested in those kinds of pyramid schemes and、um, 
but but apart from knowing that that's in there, I don't know anything else about it. So hmm. yeah, difficult to say. What what about you? Maybe like actually, I think I'm maybe more inclined to watch Station Eleven, the adaptation mm-hmm. of her other book, um, instead of reading it. Mm-hmm. It's also about a pandemic. It's also like a post-apocalyptic kind of thing. So maybe it's still hitting a bit too close to home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So question for you. Is it too early for the pandemic to be treated as a past event? I think it's too early to be treating it as a past event. Yes, because I think it's still happening. But I don't mm. think that's what she did in the book. No. Because her character, well, one of her characters is neck deep into in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it still seems to be a relevant thing. And I like that despite knowing that pandemics are real and that people have gone through COVID-19, even in the future, we still don't seem to have learned much from our experiences. (laughs) How about you? I don't really know. I sort of feel, again, this is coming from a place of ignorance because I avoid the news so much. I sort of feel like it is starting to become sort of history and that it mm-hmm. going forward it will be similar to a flu and a flu, you know, like you'll have your annual jab and da 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 da. However, I am much less flippant about it since having had it a few weeks ago and feeling mm-hmm. as awful as I felt. And thank God I had no breathing difficulties or, you know, I really had nothing terribly wrong with me. I was just very sore and it was super unpleasant. So I think maybe there is still, especially for people who have lost loved ones to it, especially when you see the stories about, you know, like politicians having garden parties while telling you you can't sit with your loved ones while they pass away. I think um, I think it is maybe too soon to to make light of it. I agree with you in this novel. I don't think she did make light of it, but... Um, I think we are starting to see novels published where passing references are being made to it. And at the moment, most authors tend to just sort of refer to it as a thing that has happened, but not, you know, that's not the main part of the story. Mm -hmm. But I do wonder how long it's going to be before we start seeing like critical analysis of, oh, did we overreact to the COVID-19 pandemic? And, you know, were all the lockdowns really necessary and all that sort of thing? And Mm -hmm. I think it is too soon for that kind of, we don't know, you know, we're not going to know the full impact of it for decades. So anything else from you? I think that's everything. I like the reference to a book tattoo. At some point, Olive, one of her taxi drivers, seems to be a big fan, and she's tattooed a line from her book. Um, so I, I like that because mm. you know tattoos, and I have a book tattoo. So yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's it, really. Not really much else to say. For such a short book, we have managed to talk about it for a long time. So well done, us. As we always do. <laughs> Do you have the schedule in front of you? Do you know what the next one is? So we aren't entirely sure what the next book is going to be because I had selected something without reading the blurb and having just read the blurb, we are not convinced by it. So we might insert a bit here during editing about what the next book is or you might have to go to our Instagram or website to see what the next one is going to be. (laughs) 
depending on when we choose it. <laughs> okay, cool. Sounds good. Okay, well, until then, have a lovely couple of days until I see you again. Yes, you too. Bye-bye. And bye. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about us and the podcast, visit our website at readingmaterialspodcast.com. We also publish additional content, including blog posts around the world of books and our thoughts on the topic. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at reading.materials.podcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at readingmaterialspod. Until next time, keep reading.